Welcome to a special episode of the Ag Bioscience Podcast, a weekly collaboration with Agrinovis Indiana and Inside Indiana Business. I'm your host, Gary Dick, and this week, Agrinovis President and CEO Mitch Frazier talks with Jason Lusk, Distinguished Professor and Head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University, and Brian Borkard, Senior Director at EY Parthenon Food and Agriculture Strategy, about the recent study, Resilience Through Disruption. You can read the full report at agrinovas.com slash research. Enjoy the discussion. The largest sector of Indiana's ag bioscience economy is value-added food and nutrition, topping more than $29 billion annually, according to the most recent survey. A new research report from Agrinovas Indiana really digs into what happened to the food and nutrition industry here in Indiana amidst the global pandemic and estimates more than half a billion dollars an economic impact to the industry amidst the pandemic. Hi, I'm Mitch Frazier, President and CEO of Agrinovis Indiana, and really delighted today to be joined by the two co-authors of that research report, Resilience Through Disruption. I'm joined today by Dr. Jason Lusk, head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue, a distinguished professor and an acclaimed media expert, been on CNBC, spends time with Wall Street Journal, and today, he's spending time with us. So, Jason, welcome. Good to see you. Happy to be here, Mitch. And also joined by research report co-author Brian Boquard from EY Parthenon, Senior Director of Strategy. Brian, really delighted to spend some time with you as well. Thanks a lot, Mitch. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with two illustrious people. Ooh, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. Well, Jason, this is, uh, this is an incredible research report. I believe the first time we've seen here in Indiana both quantitative and qualitative definition of the food supply chain, specifically in our state. For those that may have not read the report, could you really kind of summarize what the report is and, and what are some of the key findings? Yeah, thanks, Mitch. Let, let me first stop and say I appreciate your leadership in pulling together this team to create the report. And um and, you know, I think it was your foresight that we really needed to do something like this for the state and take this opportunity to take some inventory, you know, of what happened in, in Indiana during this you know, very tumultuous time, but also to look forward and, and think about what we can do better. So I, I really appreciate you uh, giving us this opportunity to, to be able to, to write this report. So, you know, at a really high level, I think this report tries to characterize the state of agriculture and, and the food supply chain in, in Indiana. And I think, you know, quantify some of the disruptions that happened during the pandemic. Uh, Brian, some hard work interviewing people in the food supply chain to get their perspectives on, on what they experienced during all of that. Uh, we, there's a set of recommendations that comes at the end. I think for me, one of the main takeaway points is really, you know, how complex and interlinked our food and agricultural supply chains are. I think even for someone like me that's a food and agricultural researcher, we you know sometimes think we know a lot. Then you, you get this pandemic and all of a sudden you realize, I don't I don't think I actually knew as much as I thought I did about how interlinked our, our food and ag supply chains are. So I think for me, that's a big takeaway of this report. Yeah, really, really helpful, Jason. And I, I think, Brian, your partnership at EY and with what the team at Purdue did really does hit both sides of that equation, Jason, to your point on not just defining the impacts, but beginning to recommend 
what we do as an industry next, not necessarily from a policy standpoint, but what can we go do? And I think one of the biggest pieces that came for me from the research was it's just a massive amount of change that the food supply chain has experienced for decades. I, I love the point that your team brought out, Brian. I know you found this data. It is shocking to me still. We look back to the 1960s, the average grocery store had roughly 6,000 products. We fast forward to today, that number is 33,000 products on average here in the United States. And just that explosive growth we've seen over a few decades really does begin to compound some of the challenges we saw in the spring of 2020 at the height of the early days of the global pandemic when we go to grocery stores and shelves would be empty. It was the first time really, I think for many of us that the global food supply chain, the Indiana food supply chain became really forefront. When you look at the research, Brian, help us understand this change. Where are we in the change cycle? Are we are we accelerating change? Is it plateauing? Is it decelerating? And what are some of those changes that you're seeing that are really affecting the food supply chain here in Indiana? Yeah, great questions, Mitch. I mean, what, let me start by saying it's accelerating. Um, you know, I don't. I think that the pace of change right now is probably as slow as it'll ever be uh, for our lifetimes. And um, you know, the, the complexity of our supply chain, it's really fascinating. If you go back, you know, a century or, or so, the, the grocery store was a very small affair and it was relatively local. Um, now you fast forward a little bit and you get 6,000 SKUs. Now today the average grocery store has, you know, 30,000 30, something SKUs. Uh, hypermarkets will have 100,000 plus SKUs. At the same time that there's been a proliferation of these products, of products that are available, they've been more and more standardized. So, you know, if we look at say QSRs and restaurants, you know, chains, um, big brands, you know, they're, they're putting out more and more products and every product is more and more standardized, uh, which I think really speaks to the efficiency of the modern food system and its ability to distribute huge amounts of food uh, made from primary products to hundreds of millions and billions of people globally. Jason, any thoughts there as we look at this change? You spend every day digging into this this world. Help us see uh, your, your perspective. Yeah, well, I think, you know, talking about those disruptions, maybe some numbers will help illustrate some of that. So I think in the early days, so mid-March and April, there was about a 60% drop in foods away from home spending, so restaurants. Um, at the same time, there's a spike, uh, almost you know, equal in the opposite direction of spending in grocery stores. And even still today, we're still, you know, we're not recovered. So we're still spending, you know, less than 10, you know, 10% on food away from home than we were, you know, back in January of 2020 and still spending about, you know, 10 or, or, or percent more at grocery stores. And the reason I mentioned, that, I guess a little bit about Brian said about standardization. And, and one of the things we, we observed is it, it's, it's more challenging than might first meet the eye to move food products from one supply chain to another because they're so tailored to their end point. So just to maybe give one case study here, eggs, I think was, was a good example of the kind of disruption here that egg prices spiked in grocery stores in March and April, like a you know more than a hundred percent, I think it was about a three times uh, increase. And so the naive view is, well, let's just take all those eggs we're sending to restaurants and put them in the grocery store. Well, that sounds all fine and good, but you don't have enough, literally enough cartons. Um, the other thing is uh, these egg supply chains are specialized. So you have ent entire barns of chickens that are delivering only to restaurants. 
So again, they don't have those cartons, the way to the packaging to get to grocery stores, but moreover, the way they're regulated and, and sent to restaurants is often in uh, powder or liquid form. And as a result, they're, they're regulated in a slightly different way. They're pasteurized products. And so um, they literally could not, you know, legally turn around and sell those as shell eggs in, in grocery stores. And there were some changes in laws that, that ultimately enabled that. But I think it does point to some of the challenges that, that are underneath the surface that come along with efficiency and specialization that sometimes that could be counter to flexibility and the ability to easily move things from one supply chain to another. Yeah, well, well said. Talking with Dr. Jason Lusk, Dr. Brian Boquard on the new Agronovus Indiana research study available online for free, agronovusindiana.com slash research, agronovusindiana.com slash research. The title of the research report, Resilience Through Disruption. And Brian, I think this is this is the key of the of the entire study, that agility that Jason just talked about is really a challenge. And we think about the agility on the supply chain, but we also think about the agility on the consumer side and consumer expectations. We've seen tremendous shifts in consumer expectations across the value chain, right? From, from each and every piece of the food supply chain. Talk if you would about what you're seeing on the consumer side of the food supply chain and maybe changes in demands or expectations there. Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. I mean, if you go back uh, pretty far in history, you know, consumers uh, were pretty clear on what you were gonna eat for dinner today, tomorrow, next season, next year, because it was, it was what was produced near you. And now we have this proliferation of, of choices available to us. So you know, consumers are really looking for affordable products. They've always been looking for affordable products, but to that mix, we're adding, you know, requests for sustainability. We're adding requests for transparency. We're adding a request for um, health, taste, uh, you know, so all of these expectations come into play. It's a very multidimensional problem for all of our companies to solve. Um, and it's all kind of wrapped up together in, you know, advancements in technology that are giving consumers peaks like never before into their food chain. And so they're really starting to think hard about, you know, where does my food come from? What's the supply chain by which it gets to me? What's its impact on the environment? These are all questions that consumers are starting to ask. Um, and at the same time, you know, I think a lot of people ask, can we get consumers to pay more for some of these attributes or less for some of these attributes? Um, I, I would argue that a lot of these things are going to become table stakes for many, many producers. And the question isn't, can you get people to pay more for transparency or more for sustainability? It's, can you as a producer or provider or manufacturer or distributor stay in business if you're not providing these types of things? Will you be competitive in the market? Um, and that's, you know, I think a really key question for a lot of our Indiana producers here in the state. Jason, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, Brian used the word table stakes. I think I'd want to, uh, the other word I'd use is market access. You know, if you can't provide information on traceability, sustainability, those kinds of things, you may not have a market to sell into in the future. Um, it's not that way right right now at the moment, but I think that's the way the world is heading. And that the all this technology, the data that we know is surrounding us all, I mean, that's changing the nature of the food supply chain. And I think there's going to be an expectation in the future that, that consumers expect to, to know more because that data exists and, and that's gonna that pressure is gonna come down from the consumer to the retailer, the manufacturer, all the way down to the farm level. I think we're just at the cusp of that uh, even today. But you know, beyond those supply chain issues, I, I think it's a really revolutionary time in terms of how food is bought and sold. You know, we talked about the, the big shift 
and food away from home and food at home, but even in grocery stores, we were already on a positive trend towards more e-commerce and food, buying food online, but the pandemic just shifted that in a whole nother gear. Uh, uh, and so a lot more food purchasing online and uh, that may change the nature of food retailing. So we were already seeing some examples of retailers setting up uh, what's called micro fulfillment centers, so little warehouses outside of town. You know, right now when you put in an order to your grocery store to go pick up, they're, they're filling that in the store. And you can see that when you go in the grocery store, there are stockers in there filling things. But, you know, a more efficient way of doing that potentially is, is getting those people in a warehouse type setting. And so, you know, that could change what the future of even the grocery store looks like. And we're already seeing that even in food service with, um, you know, with various apps that you can use to have meals delivered directly to your home. So I think it's a really vibrant, uh, maybe a uh, disruptive time in the way we buy food. And I think, you know, again, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but 10 years from now, we may have a very different food buying landscape than the one we have today. Yeah, well, well said. Dr. Jason Lust, Dr. Brian Boquard, talking today about the new Agronovus Indiana research report, Resilience Through Disruption, available online at agronovusindiana.com slash research agronovusindiana.com slash research. Jason, I want to come back to you. You, you talk about this, this shift that we're all seeing as consumers, right? In the, in, the, in the aisles of the grocery store, we're seeing those big carts, people filling. We're seeing massive flows of venture capital into uh, new delivery models, e-commerce, as you mentioned. But we also look at, in the research report, some other shifts, these macro trends that are really starting to show themselves in the food supply chain specifically around data analytics, around electrification. If you would, maybe talk about this convergence of macro trends that we all experience in our daily lives. And now we're seeing it on its way to our dinner plate. Yeah. I mean, we I mentioned a little before sort of data, but you think about, you know, if we're spending more of our food dollars online, that that's data, right? And they know it's me uh, and they know hey, there's other people in my house that, um, that have similar buying behaviors and, and linking those purchasing patterns enables retailers to know more about us, better predict what, what we might buy and, and what we might be willing to pay a premium for. It, it all sounds a little creepy and maybe those folks that are a little concerned about big, big tech get you know, a little angry about it. Um, but I think it's the world we're living in and it's the world we're gonna live in. And you know, the hope, maybe the ideal is that it can enable food products and food manufacturers to give us more of more of what we want um, at a more affordable price. Um, things are better tailored to our own particular uh, tastes and preferences. So I think that's that's a big macro issue. The other, you know, just economics um, has a lot to say, you know, in terms of impacts on the food sector. I think we've seen a big increase in um, unemployment that's been associated with the the pandemic. Uh, but I think it's also probably issues with labor are not new. Um, in fact, la labor was a big issue before the pandemic. And I think we'll see probably pushes towards automation throughout food and agriculture, particularly in our meat packing sector, where we had some problems with um, with worker illnesses that, that caused some real si significant disruptions in shutdowns and in, in meat processing. So I think that's a, these labor issues have been there before. And that's kind of a macro issue, not just specific to agriculture. But it's one that I think um, will certainly be a, some, a, an area for change on out into the future. Yeah, well, well said. Well said. Brian, any thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I, I always have a lot of thoughts. Um, 
you know, I, I not to back this up a little bit, but you know, Jason talks about e-commerce. You asked about e-commerce. This is a huge trend, and I think what the report does a, an okay job of, I'd like to say, would be uh, asking difficult questions about this. You know, if e-commerce is the wave of the future, and you know, everybody has access to food delivery at almost no or very low cost, what's the definition of a food desert? You know, I might challenge Jason Lusk and some of our academic colleagues who have you know the opportunity to think big about these questions to to think about that. You know, things on my mind lately, electrification of our transportation system, what does that do to the biofuel? What does that do to our renewable fuel standards? Um, you know, I, I can maybe only half jokingly say that the renewable fuel standards are one caucus away from, you know, disruption themselves. Um, you know, what is alternative protein and, and the massive growth that we see in alternative proteins, whether that's plant-based burgers or plant-based uh, dairy products, or, you know, the advent of cultivated meats. I know Singapore has recently approved the use of the sale of cultivated meats to consumers. What does that do to the farm base when Indiana grows, you know, 10 to 14 million acres of corn and soy every year, when in the U.S. we're growing, you know, 160, excuse me, 160 to 180 million acres of, of commodity crops? These are really challenging questions, um, and we need to think pretty deeply about what they portend for the future. Do we ask our producers here to diversify? Do we need to diversify our supply chains within Indiana? Do we need to connect differently to the rest of the nation and the world as a state? Um, all really difficult questions, and I don't pretend to have the answers, but I, I, you know, I can ask the questions, I guess. That means, uh, Mitch, there's a, there's a lot more reports for Brian and I to uh, write. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, well, it's, well, this you know, look, I mean, this this collaboration is a, a great example of one of the recommendations that we actually make in the report, which is to be more collaborative. So, you know, getting together with industry, academia, you know, economic development organizations, um, incubators, and accelerators, all working together to, <laughs> excuse me, solve these uh, questions is is really the wave of the future. Dr. Jason Lust, Dr. Brad Boquard, talking about resilience to disruption, a new research report from Agrinovis Indiana. Again, available online, agrinovisindiana.com slash research. Gentlemen, we're going to go into a rapid fire round as we wrap this up. Uh, first, I think it's important. We probably should have done this at the beginning, but we talk about value added food and nutrition. And the three of us know that world well. Uh, it would probably be helpful if we give some give some examples of maybe folks who we talked with in the research report so people can begin to understand who plays in this space in Indiana. What does value-added food and nutrition look like in Indiana? And whoever wants to answer that, if you could maybe just give a couple examples of who would be in this space would be helpful. So Brian did some, of the, the, some good interviews here, so I'll, I'll let him take that one. Oh, you're giving me the hard questions. I, uh, yeah, we had some great, great interviews. Um, we, we interviewed several protein producers, people who are looking at, you know, produce branded or higher end protein products. We talked with them about, you know, the shifts that are happening in their industry. One of them had a great response. Um, when I asked about alternative proteins, he said uh, that this should make us be better. It should make us tell a more compelling story to the consumer. It should make us you know, make us want to make our product more efficiently, but also, you know, more interesting for the consumer. And I think that captures a lot of the feelings that, that people have there. We also, you know, I, I speak with a lot of uh, food manufacturers, um, people who make consumer facing products. There are a lot of trends that occurred during the, the pandemic where people wake up one day, you know, and the the condiment manufacturer thinks to himself, geez, people have hoarded about 50 pounds of mustard. They're going to wake up one day and our sales are going to plummet. 
And my question is what's going to happen in the future as we come back from that? Are things like mustard going to be sold in dark stores? Um, is it really something that we need in the center aisles of a grocery store? Can that space be used more efficiently or differently by, you know, the retailers? Um, because, you know, as Jason said, maybe it's more efficient to have that labor centralized at, at a location where you just package it up and deliver it. Um, I, you know, maybe that digs a little bit into what you're asking here about value added uh, and the shifts that we see in the future coming to Indiana and the region. We think, uh, you know, one of the groups that we talked to was Ag Alumni Seed, which uh, is a popcorn seed producer that that produces seed for, I don't know, a very large share of the popcorn that's grown in the world. But you think about what value added means. It's not just the standard um, commodity popcorn, but, you know, there's different colors, different varieties. There are even things that sometimes as an agricultural researcher, I bristle about, but, you know, non-GMO or organic or, you know, these kinds of practices. But, you know, if people are willing to pay a premium for them, that's one way to think about what value added is. It's, it's something more than the commodity yeah. uh, that you can capture a little extra value in that food supply chain. And I think even when we think about something as generic as popcorn, and here's, a, here's an example of a company in our state that you know, as lots of varieties and lots of production practices that for those people that are willing, and it is more and it's more costly, but there are opportunities to capture a little more of that retail about uh, retail food dollar. Yeah, I can. go ahead, Brian. Uh, apologies, Mitch. I, you know, we, we address um, organics and non-GM and some of these trends in the report. And, um, you know, I, I also bristle um, probably because uh, I also kind of came up in a very traditional agricultural <laughs> background for my education, but uh, you know, I mean, I think we found that organic production is growing some 16% in the state of Indiana, uh, faster than the annual uh, growth rate of 8 to 10%. Um, you know, we spoke with people that were producing, say, commodity soybeans who are starting to plant more non-GM soybeans. And we can observe instances in the market where startups are developing non-GM soybeans that are high protein for particular uses. And so we look at the value added nature of that it's driven by consumer demand for say alternative proteins or it's being driven by um you know consumer demand for non-gm products or organic you know chicken that requires organic feed um and there's a lot of that going on here but i also think there's additional opportunity for indiana to diversify its production base its primary production its primary processing base to accommodate some of these trends uh particularly ones that are growing quickly and I might, you know, add one thing to that and say that, you know, we talk about socioeconomics, we talk about, you know, the stratification of incomes and the availability of food to people who are of less means. Um, but the price of organics has also come down pretty precipitously, you know, more and more it's become a middle class trend uh, where people are buying at least a few things that are organic um, in their shopping cart, not everything. And, and I would I would say that so many of these trends start with people of higher income and kind of work their way into kind of mass market appeal. And you know, part of that comes through pricing, part of that comes through awareness. Um, and I think a lot of these trends are headed in that direction. I, I might just comment there too. It doesn't have to be about, you know, organics and non-GMO either. So another Indiana related product, you know, from, uh, Pharaoh's farm, fair life milk, you know, it's just, it's a higher, higher protein content, uh, you know, maybe appeals to folks that might have some concerns about, you know, lactose, different packaging and brand names gives an opportunity for a producer to capture more of that retail uh, dollar. Um, and so it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be non-GMO or organic. It could be any variety of dimensions related to health or other attributes consumers may want. 
I know you said yeah. you wanted this to be rapid fire. We're not. I'm, a, I'm an academic, <laughs> right? so I'm not very good at rapid fire. I love it. This is this is great conversation. I think Jason, your point, it, it's or not and, right? Or rather, it's not or, it's and. It can be both. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And I think that's as we talk through food and nutrition, oftentimes we get into a binary discussion, and it, it doesn't have to be binary. It can it can be both. And I think that's a, a really important piece that that Brian, you, and Jason both have found through the research, and it comes out in the research. You know, in the research itself, there are five key recommendations on what we can do here in Indiana. One of those, the number one, really focuses on traceability and transparency. I think that's a big piece. Jason, you talked about that as we look at data specifically. Uh, we would welcome, I'm going to try to do my best here, guys. Give me 30 seconds on, on what you see in the next 24 months. What are the big opportunities that exist for Indiana food and nutrition to accelerate and add more resilience to the system? I think the collaboration is really key. Um, one of the challenges in the pandemic was, you know, if you've got your blinders on, you know, the people you're selling to or you're buying from, and that's it. And if there's a disruption, you're kind of sunk if you don't have a broader network to turn to. And that's what, that's when you have to plow vegetables under the field or, you know, back in the field when you, when you don't have other, other uses or connections there. So I think, you know, groups like Agronovus, frankly, I think, you know, bringing people together, uh, part of it is just informal networking, I think is a really great opportunity. And I'll pick on one other to sort of invest in the future. I think, you know, it, it takes money to um, to build new companies and to invest in the future. And I think some of that, the, the kind of work that Agronovus is doing to attract that venture capital dollars and turn that innovation into something consumers want. I think hopefully we'll see more new startups in this space, both coming out of Purdue, but also coming out of Indiana more generally that can help bring new products to help facilitate some of this uh, value added uh, agriculture that we see in the future. Yeah, but I'll, I'll say that Jason stole my two favorite recommendations. Those were the two that, that I planned on talking about as well. So, you know, um, like I said, the collaboration that we had with you, Mitch, um, was a great example of collaboration. And, you know, we had a specific purpose to write a report, but that, you know, it doesn't have to be that. It could be to develop a new product. It could be to hold each other's products in inventory. It could be to develop new sales plans. Um, it could be to do your strategic planning together, you know, with your suppliers, with your buyers, uh, with other people in the chain that are adjacent to you so that you are building a, a chain and not just a business, right? Um, and then, you know, through the report, I'll kind of highlight the invest in the future part and say we spoke with some startups here in the state of Indiana. I really appreciate the information they gave us. This is a great place to, to start a company. And, you know, the opportunities and the work that Agronovus has done to, to build that platform, I think it, it is just potentially powering the state to the next level in terms of, you know, the, the opportunities that are developed here, the money that can come into this, the economic development that can come out of it, and the way that all these companies can collaborate. Um, and I'll add one final bit here and say, you know, this state is, it has three of the world's best universities um, right here. They all have incubators. They're all really good at collaborating with their communities. Um, we also have a really great kind of biotech industry here. We have some medical device industries here. There's a lot of human capital in this state. And I would really encourage companies, you know, nationally to take advantage of that and to collaborate with Agronovus to develop those skills and build right here in the state of Indiana. That is terrific. Dr. Brian Bocard, Dr. Jason Lusk, the two co-authors of our new research report, Resilience Through Disruption, really understanding what's happening in the Indiana food supply chain. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you to your teams for making this the first comprehensive report of the Indiana food supply chain. 
And I believe this is going to be the first of many discussions we have. I think we've got some some things on the horizon where I think we can link arms together and to bring more people into this story, to build the collaborations and to build those connections within the supply chain. If you've not yet read the report, please do take a look at it. It's free. It's online at agronovasindiana.com slash research. That's agronovasindiana.com slash research. Again, Dr. Jason Lusk, Dr. Brian Boquard, thank you so much for your participation and thanks for being uh, great partners with Agronovas Indiana. That's Agronovas Indiana President and CEO Mitch Frazier with Jason Lusk, Distinguished Professor and Head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue, and Brian Borkard, Senior Director at EY Parthenon Food and Agriculture Strategy. The report, Resilience Through Disruption, is now available at agronovasindiana.com slash research. Thanks for joining us. I'm Gary Dick. We'll see you next time. This podcast is a product of Inside Indiana Business, hosted by Gary Dick, produced by Kayla Chittister, Bridget O'Reilly, Libby Fritz, and Joe Ullery. More people get Indiana Business news from Inside Indiana Business than any other source.